Welcome back, my friends. Today, as we continue studying Megillat Esther, I'm really excited about this class. <laughs> I'm excited because I feel like I finally solved a, a problem. Well, maybe not a problem. A problem for me. Like, there's something about the Megillah I have not understood since I'm a child. And every year it bothered me. And the older I got and the more I learned, the bigger the question became. Now, this is very possibly as a result of me not being so learned. Maybe. But at any rate, the good news is that I, I figured this out. And I'm so excited to share it with you. And maybe for those who aren't super learned, but, you know, kind of just muddling their way through the Megillah and trying to understand its deeper messaging, you'll find this really, really interesting and fascinating too. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge our special sponsor for today. It's, an, it's anonymous, and it's by a very special individual as an act of thanksgiving to Hashem for the restoration of health. And I want to take this opportunity to wish that very special individual long, happy, and healthy years, and may Hashem fulfill the desires of your heart. So, today's class is entitled, The Persian Pony Express. And you're thinking, hey, that's so cute. The rabbi took a name of something that was a, a mail system in the Wild West. And because it's a Pony Express, and he put in Persian Pony Express, and it's a cute name. It's not. It's actually the Persian Pony Express, as amazing as this is going to sound. So I'm going to, before we begin to actually go into the text, the body of the Megillah, I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview on the Persian Pony Express and the Royal Road, because the information, the historical information, the factual information, not from holy sources, you know, just like just 
scientific stuff or, or what we would call secular historians will lay the foundation for understanding the incredible messaging that's played out in Hashem's holy scriptures in the Megillah. And it's, it's really very inspiring. I, I, I think it's very inspiring. I think you'll be uplifted by this. So let me begin with a quote. Okay, this is a quote, and I want you to just listen. If you're somewhat, you know, well-read, and if not in the history of the United States Postal Service, even if you're well-read, you probably will recognize this. Quote, Neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. United States Postal Service, right? Well, everyone thinks this is the motto or slogan of the USPS. And it's actually stolen from an ancient Persian postal system. I kid you not. How did this phrase come to be associated with the United States Postal Service? Well, first of all, the, the Pony Express, of course, appeared in the American Wild or Old West. And although it set speed records for mail delivery and it became a well-loved and thoroughly romanticized piece of American history, the Pony Express was in fact only in operation for a mere 19 months. That's all. In that brief time, it failed. <laughs> it failed to make a profit. It failed to secure a lucrative government mail contract. And between the hostile Aboriginal peoples, First Nation or Native Americans, however you want to refer to them, and people whose land was stolen, yes. And the completion of the transcontinental telegraph system, the Pony Express, was driven right out of business. And it became obsolete by October of 1861. Now, how did this phrase, which is kind of a description almost of the Pony Express. How does it come, except there was no snow in the Wild West, how did it come to be associated with the U.S. Postal Service? So this unofficial motto is inscribed in granite over the entrance to the James A. Farley Building at 8th Avenue and 33rd Street in New York City, right in the middle of Manhattan. Many people refer or used to refer to that as the capital of the world's commerce. So back in the early 20th century, there's an architectural firm named McKinn, Mead and White, who are chosen to design the New York General Postal, Post Office building. Construction begins in 1912. It concludes in 1914. The building is doubled in size in 1934, and its name is changed to honor Postmaster General James A. Farley. Now, one of the architects is a guy named Kendall, and Kendall was well-read on classic Greek literature. It was just something he enjoyed. He grew up in a wealthy household. His father was a scholar of the classics, and he selected a passage, which was translated by Professor George Herbert Palmer of Harvard University, a translation of the Persian Wars by the ancient Greek historian, who, by the way, is called the world's first historian, at least the first one to write history books as we know them today. His name was Herodotus, and Herodotus, um, writes in his Persian Wars, quote, It is said that as many days as there are in the whole journey, so many are the men and horses that stand along the road, each horse and man at the interval of a day's journey. 
And these are neither stayed by snow nor rain, nor heat nor darkness, from accomplishing their appointed course with all speed. That's the original statement. <laughs> Taken, but it's not really Greek, although it's written by the Greek historian Herodotus. He's describing the Persian Pony Express. So the Persian Pony Express was a highly efficient relay system that was in practice two millennia before the Pony Express appeared in the American Wild West. This method of carrying messages that Herodotus describes is a Persian invention. It enabled the messengers to travel swiftly. Now listen to this. In this fashion, King Xerxes, he's the guy we think is Ahasuerus, sent a message home to Persia that the Greeks had destroyed his fleet off Salamis in 480 before the Common Era. Now, we know this from Xerxes, but the point I want to make is that the unofficial motto of the U.S. Postal Service that's carved in stone on a famous building in New York is actually describing the ancient Persian couriers. And yes, they show up in Megillat Esther. So here's a little bit of background. We, in these episodes and study of Megillus Esther, have talked copiously about Darius, about Cyrus, Koresh and Daryovish, and we also talked about Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is succeeded by, at least who the Megillah calls, Darius II or Daryovish. He's known in official textbooks as, as he, has, he has another name, but I'm not going to go into that now. Here's the point. When Darius I rose to power, he realized that the empire needs an efficient organization. He needs to be able to prevent his territorial governors from gaining enough power to overthrow him. So Darius appoints a separate military commander for each territory. So you have the civil authority and you have the military authority. Darius monitors his governors and his commanders by using imperial spies. The king's ears keep tabs on both the military commander and the civilian governor, who really, in a sense, are in competition with each other, each one trying to take the other one down a notch. And in this way, he conquers and divides. He has his own appointees looking over their shoulder at all times, and he is keeping tabs on all of them by virtue of his postal system, his postal service. The empire was connected through a network of royal roads which stations placed a day's travel apart. Like the Silk Road, these roads promoted cultural interaction. It united the disparate peoples that comprised the far-flung Persian Empire, which is described in the Megillah as 127 separate or unique provinces. The Persian road ran from Susa, that's Shushan, all the way, which is northern Persia, modern-day Iran, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea in Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, a distance of more than 1,600 miles. The postal stations at regular intervals along the route provided fresh horses for envoys to quickly deliver messages throughout the empire, and that's what inspired that famous line, neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom, you know, that line that has been appropriated <laughs> by the U.S. Postal Service. And the, under Cyrus, 
the Persians built a 1,500-mile road from Sardis in Asia Minor all the way to Susa, and this has even expanded. Now, just to help you understand, you know, for us Canadians who like to go south, these days it's not really possible, but you, you, uh, you can drive. You can actually drive. Interstate, Interstate 75 runs from our Canadian border, just at the northern tip of Michigan, and it runs all the way to the southern end of Florida. Just by the way, Interstate 75 is not as long as the Royal Persian Road. Just gives you an idea. It crisscrosses the entirety of the United States of America. One of the few U.S. interstates that's longer than the Royal Road is the I-80 that runs for over 2,500 miles from New York City to San Francisco, California, stopping at a lot of important cities along the way. Now, the Royal Road is what makes the postal system possible. According to some records, there are 80 stations where one horsebound mail carrier passes the mail to the next, a system that's exactly like the Pony Express in the 1860s, except this is happening several hundred years before the Common Era. Oh, by the way, the Persian mail system, that wasn't for ordinary citizens. It was for the king or important political and military leaders who were allowed to use the postal systems such as the satraps or the, or the, or the provisional regional governors in this, in this uh, incredible empire. The idea of ordinary people being able to mail letters does not take hold, believe it or not, until the 17th century. It started in Great Britain. So the Royal Road, which eventually goes for over 1,600 miles, in the time of Cyrus, it's expanded to have a hundred, over a hundred stops along the way. And you can cover the distance between Sardis, Turkey, to Susa, Shushan, in seven grueling 24-hour days. That's incredible. That means what would take 90 days, 90 days for the typical traveler to walk, three months, could be essentially covered in a week by back-to-back-to-back-to-back couriers who would pass the message from one to the next. All these are royal couriers, a fresh animal, fresh provisions, fresh supply, fresh rider is waiting at each station. And so everything is just passed off. I mean, you probably heard about this when you read about the Pony Express. But the Pony Express is incredibly based on this ancient system that's in use in the time of Ahasuerus. This incidentally precedes the Roman royal roads by centuries, and it is even the Greek historian Herodotus who says, who talks about this, how the Persians were way ahead of everybody else and had put this into place. Now, he also talks about the varying terrains, different parts, mountainous areas, desert areas, marshy areas, different parts. It seems that in Roman times, the forerunner of modern-day asphalt gets introduced, and that's not the case during the time of the Persian Empire. The point, of course, is that eventually, in the Persian Empire, it seems that this royal road was able to stretch to a distance of nearly 2,000 miles in a very, very, very short amount of time. They were covering 
as we said, 1,600 miles in the course of, of uh, one week. Herodotus marveled, and I quote, nothing mortal travels so fast as these messengers. They will not be hindered from accomplishing their, be their best speed, the distance they have to go, either by snow, rain, heat, and you know the rest of that. So this system of communication was unmatched in speed until the telegraph doomed the horse to becoming obsolete. All right, why is this relevant? Well, my friends, this is super relevant because unlike the first decree, which was put into place by Haman, we're now dealing with a new decree, a new royal edict. As you might remember, and if you haven't been watching, I encourage you to go back and watch the previous episodes because in order to fully appreciate and understand what we're going to talk about today, you need to look back and see what we learned previously. Ahasuerosh, the king, refuses to recall the original edict. It doesn't look good for him. It's not in his best interest. And whilst Ahasuerosh now does want to please his beautiful wife Esther, he's more worried about preserving his own skin. By the way, in the end, he does get assassinated. And when the taxes become too intense, it crushes the economy and breaks the monarchy's back. But at any rate, Ahasuerosh is more worried about his political capital and how he will appear. He says, no, 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 this is not going to work. We can't do it. It's unlawful as if he really cared about the law. He legislated new law whenever he wanted. But Ahasuerus doesn't want to legislate new law. It doesn't look right for him. So he says, you'll have to create a new or fresh edict. And that's what we're learning about in the previous episode. In this new edict, Ahasuerus appoints Mordechai and Esther. In fact, he tasks them with doing the job. He says, get the job done. Your, your mission now is going to be, able to be able to send out a message to the entire kingdom, but a message in which the people will know that Ahasuerus is not a fool. No, he knows exactly what he's doing. In fact, now he is merely amplifying and clarifying the previous messages. Of course, that's not exactly the case, but as we explained in the previous episode, by simply moving a comma and kind of replacing an exclamation mark, instead of kill the Jews, it's kill by the Jews, or the Jews will be killing their enemies. So he kind of reinterprets the previous edict by sending out an explanation, a clarification, an elucidation of what was sent out before, but it's very clear. So whilst the other one was purposely written in somewhat veiled fashion, as we talked about many a class ago in the Megillah, here it's very clearly spelled out, so there should be absolutely no confusion whatsoever. Now the first time around, when Haman, or Haman, sends out his decree, we hear nothing about animals. We don't hear about the method of communication used. I'll take you back to the book of Esther, the end of chapter 3. We have this clear edict going out, an edict being sent to all the nations. Get ready for this day. It's like a save the date. Big things are going to be happening. More news to come. In verse 15, which is the final verse in the third chapter, it says, and I quote, Horatzim yatsu duchufim. The couriers, literally the runners, left in great haste, bidvar ha-melech, by royal order, by the word of the king. Vahadat, 
The law was laid down in Shushan. <laughs> so we hear nothing about how the couriers utilized or were utilized, whether they rode, whether they ran. We just hear their couriers, Ratzim. We know they're fast couriers. We know they're, they're probably using the royal mail system, but we don't hear about it. The Megillah does not choose to tell us other than the couriers are known as Haratzim, royal runners. The Chufim, under pressure, pushed, so to speak, the Ibn Ezra says, Kidmus the Chufim b'mihira, says somebody who's pushed to do it with great haste and great speed. So the runners are sent out and the message is sent out with great haste or great speed. Now when we talk about the second edict, and we're in the midst of studying the 8th chapter of the Megillah. In our previous episode, we kind of covered or went all the way until verse 11. But I'm going to go back to verse 10 without elucidating the details as I did previously. In the previous episode, I explained the details in verse 10. But I just want to quote. After Vayichtov B'Shem HaMelech, after this was written in the king's name, and we talked about in our previous episode the difference between writing it in the king's name or by the king's order. Now it's written in the king's name, and it's Vayachtom B'Tabat HaMelech, it's sealed by the royal signet. The Megillah says, Vayishlach Sforim, the documents, the scrolls, the books, were sent Biyad Harotzim in the hands of the couriers or the royal runners, here, the Megillah tells us about their mode or method of transportation. Basusim, by horseback. We never heard about horses the first time. And here's the funny thing, the part that's driven me nuts since I'm a kid. Rochve Horechesh, the riders of Rechesh. Now, I'm going to assume that Harotzim, Basusim, are the people who run by virtue of horses. You would think so. The riders of Rechesh, Ah, you don't know what Rechesh is. That's good. So now the Megillah will tell you. The Rechesh is Achashtronim Bnei Haramochim. Achashtronim, the offspring of Ramochim. You don't know what that is? Oh, um, I should tell you that the Gemara says it doesn't know what that is either. <laughs> I'm not kidding with you. The Gemara in Meseches Megillah on page 18 talks about the notion of reading the Megillah in translation. Well, in another language. And the Mishnah says, Haloes Sheshama Ashurit Yotza. A person who doesn't speak Hebrew but heard it read in biblical Hebrew, he would fulfill the mitzvah. But somebody who hears it read in translation, if he doesn't understand that language, would not fulfill the mitzvah. So the only way everybody can fulfill the mitzvah, whether they do or cannot understand, do or don't speak Hebrew, is if it's read in Hebrew. But otherwise, if it's read, for example, in ancient Greek, which was said to be a perfect parallel to Hebrew, unless you actually spoke ancient Greek, it wouldn't work for you. So the Gemara comes along and says, well, one minute. The whole point of reading the Megillah or listening to the Megillah being read in person is that we... Hear the story, learn its lessons, be inspired by the idea that Hashem's presence is ever-present. So the Gemara says, But they don't know what's going on. They're sitting in the room and somebody's reading in Hebrew and they're dozing off. I'm on, that wouldn't work, you can't doze off, you have to stay awake. Okay, they're staying awake. They don't understand one word that's being read. 
Midi dehave anoshim va'ame ha'aretz. Because just as you have people who are um, ignorant, unlettered, unlearned. So what difference would it make? He says, um, how, how would you fulfill the mitzvah? So the Gemara comes back with a, a very, very strange statement. The Gemara says, Ravina asks, That's a, that bothers you? That they're, that they're reading the Megillah and don't understand? So Ravina says, and tell me, and you do understand? Otu anan, do we? Do we know the meaning of According to other versions, it's Do we know what they are? We don't know what they are. So if we don't understand what we're reading, and we still fulfill the mitzvah, on some level nobody understands everything the Megillah is saying, and yet the mitzvah is fulfilled because it's read in its original iteration. So therefore, if somebody is hearing the Megillah read in its original iteration, he or she would fulfill the mitzvah simply by listening, even if they can't comprehend the words that are being read aloud. And the Gemara kind of says, Ella, rather, what we must say is, mitzvah's kriya uparsume nisa. What is accomplished here is a mitzvah of the reading of the Megillah, and a publicization of the miracle. All right. So the Gemara says, so if you don't know the meaning of and yet you fulfill the mitzvah because you're reading the Megillah, because you're publicizing the miracle, great! So too here, mitzvah's kriya uparsume nisa. You got the mitzvah of reading, the Megillah is being read, parsume nisa. There's got to be a very important story being told. Clearly, Hashem saved the Jewish people. And that's why I'm sitting and listening to the Megillah. So the message gets out. And even if I don't understand every word or any of the words being read, I still know that a great miracle happened there. And I can be thankful to Hashem. And I can be grateful. And I can celebrate the miracle of divine salvation. Now, I have to tell you that there's a dispute amongst the Rishonim, amongst the medieval sages, what the meaning of the Gemara is. Does the Gemara mean to say that Nobody knows that the Gemara doesn't know either? Or does the Gemara mean to say, well, the big sages knew, but most of the population, most people don't know what Ahashtranim Bneda Machimar? In either iteration, whether we believe that the rabbis of the Talmud themselves didn't know what this is, or we believe that perhaps the rabbis in the Talmud did know, but the average member of the population, even if he or she was learned and spoke Hebrew fluently and could understand every word of the Megillah, they still wouldn't know the meaning of Achashtron and B'nai Since I'm a child, these four words have driven me crazy. I never understood. I just couldn't understand it. Why are we talking about Rochve HaRechesh, the Rechesh writers, Achashtron and B'nai This drove me batty. Who cares of Achashtron and Bnei Ramachim? Why are we reading this? I remember studying this Gemara as a little boy at 12 years old and knocking my head against the wall and saying, well, if nobody knows it, why is it written? What relevance does it have to the story? I'm not that smart, but I got to tell you, my teacher did not have a satisfactory answer. That I do remember. And nobody I spoke to ever really explained it. And I just got, at some point... I felt foolish asking the questions. I stopped asking it. But in the back of my head, I always said to myself, someday I want to figure this out. 
you know what? Here we've arrived, and I took it upon myself to teach the Megillah. First, if I'm going to teach the Megillah to you, I've got to study it myself. And I said, okay, is, this is going to have to happen. I'm going to have to figure this out. And Baruch Hashem, I think I did. I might be wrong, but I think I did. And I'm happy to share that with you. So that's what I was excited about at the beginning. Let's take it uh, uh, forward a little bit. So let's read some of the verses that we haven't read yet. And, and let's talk about what actually happens. Because when the Megillah documents what actually happens, the Ramachim disappear. <laughs> the Bnei HaRamachim disappear. Now we only hear about Roch Veharechesh Ha'achashtronim, which drove me even crazier. How come this switches? Haman, this doesn't even say a horse. Here we got the horse, and we got the Roch Veharechesh, we got Achashtronim. First we have Achashtronim, the offspring of Ramachim. And then we just have Achashtronim, who are Rochve Rechesh. But somehow, they're no longer Bnei Haramachim. So, let's, let's take this from the top. And I, I, I shared this with you a little bit in the previous iteration, but I, I didn't really delve into it and explain it properly. I, I want to tell you before we go further, that the Bet Yosef in chapter 690 of Orochayim, which is pretty near the end of that first section of Shulchan Aruch, he has like a, a whole interesting discussion. And he, the Bet Yosef suggests that if we don't know the interpretation or the proper translation of these few words, then why not read the Megillah in any other language? And then when it comes to these few words, we could simply recite them in their original Hebrew. He says, Read the whole Megillah in a language understood by whoever's reading and listening. Out of a Megillah written in that language. And he says, When you come to these words, Those words you read in the language of the scripture. Ah, he says, Even though the listener doesn't understand what's being said, he doesn't know who Achashtronim, Mochim are. He says, Yotza, you still fulfill the mitzvah. And we know this because if somebody reads from a Megillah and a few words, a word is missing, and the Balkorah is good at what he does, and he ad-libs that word, and you still fulfill the mitzvah. And he says, furthermore, we don't have any clear indication that if somebody were to read most of the Megillah in one language and a few words in Hebrew, that he or she wouldn't fulfill the mitzvah. That's a Bish Yosef's suggestion. And the Bish Yosef comes back with something very interesting, he concludes by quoting the words of Ramban, which I think are really relevant in today's day and age when people are looking for all kinds of leniencies about fulfilling mitzvahs, but they're very strict about listening to the laws of uh, whatever it's a particular health organization it is that's telling you how to behave during COVID. Very strict when it comes to COVID. Well, mitzvahs look for every leniency in the book. So he, he says, Ramban Nachmanides wrote that even when it comes to matters of the world, he says, call maskil, anybody who is intelligent, you choose the, the strongest bridge to walk on. You take the path that's safest. You know, if people are talking about success, they're always going to seek out the path of least resistance. Why look for trouble? So Ramban says, how much more so when it comes to our Torah? 
The Torah and the mitzvahs, which are kivshon shalom, which are the greatest secrets. We don't even know the meaning. We cannot imagine the power and profundity of Torah or mitzvahs. He says, Eich naniach how would we leave the path that's been trodden out by our rabbis, our sages, our holy forebears, and put ourselves into what he calls a narrow path between the vineyard and the stone wall, which is a euphemism to the biblical pathway taken by Bilam when he was kind of squeezed by his donkey. So at any rate, Beit Yosef does not follow through in this suggestion. He himself says that we'll follow Ramban. Nachmanani's suggestion is we're just going to follow that yellow brick road, proverbially speaking. We're going to do what, what's been done, and we're not going to take chances. So this business of understanding the Achashtron and Bnei Ramochim, it's a big deal. It, it, it actually has a lot to do with how we fulfill the mitzvah today. And yet, what does it mean? If it doesn't mean anything, why is it being written in the Megillah? So let me share with you that both Rashi and Ibn Ezra do comment on what it means. But their comments, their, their elucidation is very different. Really very like different animals. And in either way, something doesn't seem to fully add up. Rashi says, Biyad Haratzim, this is Rashi on verse 10, in the hands of the couriers or runners, he says, Roch Vesusim, these are horsemen, horse riders. Shetzivalehem Larotz. He instructed the, those on horseback to set forth. What are Achashtronim? Oh, Achashtronim, he says, these are gemalim, these are camels, the dromedaries, hamemaharim lorutz, very, very swift, very fast camels. Okay, so from Rashi's perspective, I take a look at this pasuk and I read it. He sent messages by those on horseback, which Rashi does not explain, the riders of Rechesh. And it sounds like riders of Rechesh are Achashtron and Bnei Ramochim, the riders of swift camels. He doesn't say who Bnei Ramochim are. He doesn't say why they're children of Ramochim. He just says they're fast camels. Well, which is it then? And this has driven me nuts. Is it the rider of horses? Or is it the rider of camels? Did he send two different kinds of couriers? It doesn't really say that. It doesn't say as if to say there were two kinds of couriers, which would of course present the question then, why would there even be multiple couriers? It doesn't say that. He just says he handed it to those on horseback, the riders of camels. Which one is it? Horseback or camelback? I don't know. Rashi doesn't really say. So I started looking at various, you know, English translation Megillahs to see how they, how they were translated. And, and I came up with all kinds of, the Judaica Press translation says this. He sent letters by couriers on horseback, the riders of the king's steeds, the camel's bread of the dromedaries. I don't know about you, but to me that sounds like an oxymoron. It actually makes no sense to me. If it's couriers on horseback, king steeds, I think a steed is a horse. How did the steeds become the camels, bread of dromedaries? And then in verse 14, the Judaica Press translation says, the couriers, those who ride on the king's steeds, again, aren't steeds horse? 
The camels went out, hastened and pressed by the king's order. Okay, Judaic oppressors translation did not help me. So then I went to um, the Steinzelt edition, which is a really new translation. And I said, okay, I'm going to look at this and see if that helps. And here in verse 10, he translates this as, He sent the scrolls in the hands of couriers on horses, riders of the finest steeds, mules born to mares. Hmm. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. He decided to follow the Ibn Ezra. The signs of tradition decided to ignore Rashi's comment, which I have a problem with altogether, because I think Rashi is like the first, not the second. But that's what he follows. And I think he does that because it sounds like horses, not camels. It's a contradiction. You go to verse 14, he simply says, the riders of the finest steeds went out urgently and hastily. Okay, that didn't help so much. Um, let's see what else I found over here. Uh, the Arts Girl translation, they stayed loyal to Rashi. He says, sent dispatches by couriers on horseback, riders of swift mules, bred of mares. All right, at least he didn't call them steeds, because steeds are horses. But now, it's riders on horseback, swift mares, Swift mules, bred of mares. I'm totally confused. Is it horseback? Is it mules? And mare is a female horse. So what, 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 what is that? In the Kihat, it's a very new and excellent translation. He says, he sent the letters by couriers who traveled speedily on horseback, riders of speedy camels. OMG! Horseback riders of speedy camels. Would you give me a break? Which one is it? And then he just says, the Bnei Haramachim. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> why, why translate something that we don't even know the translation to? The most, the simplest or easiest read translation is by the, um, the Gutnick Library of Jewish Classics, the Slager edition. So he says, he sent letters by mounted couriers. Riders of the royal swift, royal stock of swift camels bred from dromedaries. Okay, so he obviously is troubled by the notion that it says susim, and then it says achashtronim, and Rashi says it's camels. So he simply translates mounted couriers, he translates that as mounted, as if susim doesn't mean horses, but means mounted, and he says they're mounted. You know, we have in Canada have the RCMP, Royal Mounted Canadian Police. Some of them do still ride horses, but I mean, it's not really like a horse-drawn horse organization anymore, but that's the name from the 18th century or so, or it's 19th century. So he calls it mounted. So as if susim is this overarching term for being mounted or like a cavalry, and typically cavalry would ride horses, oh, but these cavalry, or it's not military outfit, it's a postal outfit, these royal mounted, not police, but postal, post people were riding camels. So why does it say susim? And you can't get away from susim. It's, it's very cute to write mounted, but it's not what Rashi says. Rashi says, rochve susim, riders of horses. Which is why all the, other comment, all the other translations say, riders of horses. Are they riding horses? Are they riding camels? Maybe this is what drove Ibn Ezra to say, First of all, he explains the word rochve harechesh. Nobody even explains rechesh. Rashi doesn't say what rechesh is. He says rechesh comes from the word rechush. Rechush means the residuals. And rechesh means rechush hamelech. These were 
from royal stock. Okay. En kamotam. There was nothing like this. Only the king himself owned this specialized breed of animals. Genetically engineered, perfected animals. What were they? He says, what are Achashtaranim? Ibn Ezra says, yes, there are those who say, Ha-pradim. this refers to mules. Well, if it's mules, why are they B'nei Haramachim? B'nei Haramachim, he says, that's susies, that's mares, that's female horses. Ibn Ezra leans on Arabic, as does Rabbeinu Kimchi as well. He says that in Arabic, which is very similar to Hebrew, he says, we find the word ramachim, a ramach is used for a mare, a female horse. And he suggests that bnei susies chazakim ibn That if the mother is a horse, but the male is a donkey, then you get a swifter, a better mule than having a male horse and a female, a foal or a female donkey, a she-donkey. So it's... It's a certain mix. It's a mix. It's a crossbreed of horses and donkeys creating a mule. But this mule is a reverse breed mule where the male is not a donkey. The male is, a, is, a, is, the male is not a horse but a donkey. And the mother is a horse. So it's what you would call in modern terminology a perfectly engineered breed. A perfectly engineered breed. Now, if we are to accept Ibn Ezra's words, it's harotzim basusim, those, they were horseback riders, but not just any horseback riders. This was roich veharechesh. This was the specialized horses. This was the royal stock, the royal steeds. What were the royal steeds? What kind of horses did the palace have? The finest, the stallions? Nah, they weren't stallions. They were really achashtronim b'nei They were especially engineered or a specially kind of developed horse, or to be more accurate, a specially developed mule. So it's a very swift, a very swift mule, a very quick mule. But that swift mule, because it's Bnei Haramachim, because it seems like most mules were bred of female donkeys and male horse, and here they used a reverse breeding, which gave you a, a swifter product. So first of all, the Ibn Ezra himself is leaning on the Arabic language. He doesn't seem to say that he has an ancient tradition. Rashi doesn't say anything about Arabic. He says, Achashtronim are a form, a type of camel. Specially bred camel. Now, in the writings of our sages, it says that they were, these were engineered, animals were further engineered, as in certain parts of the anatomy were removed. And the, the, the hooves of these animals were somehow also engineered, hollowed out, so that they were able to run with tremendous speed. There is one source in the Talmud that suggests that these camels had two humps and eight legs. <laughs> now, the eight-legged business can actually be understood as euphemistic because, uh, you know, people say like two left hands. Eight legs just means they could run twice as fast. So these were uniquely bred camels that had tremendous stamina, two humps, didn't have to stop, could go all day or could go for days without taking a drink. And these special camels were engineered to move with tremendous haste. Now, interestingly, everything we just talked about kind of lines up with all that research I did about the Royal Road and the Persian Pony Express. We talked about different terrain. 
We talked about fresh animals. We talked about between 80 and 100 stations. So I'm thinking to myself, huh, what if they use multiple animals? What if because of the nature of the shifting terrain, part of the road was camels, and part of the road was horses, and part of the road was mules, these stronger, swift mules. A mule, a mule can climb a mountain much better than a horse can, and the horse or stallion is probably much better at a straight road. And then when you get to expanses of desert and wasteland, it's the swift camel you're going to be looking for. Now, I could be totally wrong about this. And maybe I'm going at it in a little bit of a limb, but like I, like I said to you, none of the English translations actually make any sense to me. Everybody's ignoring something. They're either ignoring Rashi, which I think you can't do, or they're ignoring Ibn Ezra, which is probably not a good idea either. And it says, it says horses. Why start off with horses? So if you follow, Ibn Ezra's approach is pretty logical. He says, horses, not just any horses. These are Rachash. This is the royal breed of horses. Oh, the royal breed of horses. Let me tell you about them. They were Achashtronim B'nei Ramochim. Which would help us understand why when we get to verse 14, we no longer have to identify the fact that they're horses. We just say, Haratzim, the runners, the couriers, were Reichve Harechash. They were the riders of the royal line, the royal steeds. Achashtronim. Those are those speedy mules or speedy donkey kind of prototypes. And they yotsu, they went out mevehalim utchufim. The interesting thing is, the first time around, it just says that they, they were sent by these couriers, and we get details like horse and horse's pedigree, b'nei aramachim. The second time we talk about when this actually happens, we hear about the way they went out, frenzied, frantic, bewildered. Mevaholim is like really, in a, in a bahola means to be overwhelmed, shell-shocked. In Duchufim, there was... This was hectic. They were really, really pushed. So we get a description of the kind of manner in which they were sent, but we hear less about the animals that they rode. So what is it? <laughs> What's the upshot of all this? Let's talk about now. Let's learn. Let's study together verse 11, which we kind of touched on already. Let's study verse 12 and verse 13, and then we'll come back to everything I just talked about now. So in verse 12, go through verse 11 already, just so uh, that the king had given the Jews, which were in every single city, so that he had given them permission to congregate, to defend themselves, and to annihilate and destroy and kill as any army, any people, any gang, any organization that was neo-Nazi in nature or extreme Antifa left, whatever it is, who were rife with anti-Semitism, who had evil designs against Jewish people, who were planning to kill the Jews. Well, now the Jews had permission to gather together and they could kill their enemies. All of their enemies. They could kill all their enemies. And they could even plunder their booty. And when would this happen? So Rashi says, Verse 11, Even though 
as, as it was written the first time around, which is why plunder, plundering booty is talked about the second time around because the second edict is essentially coming on the heels of the first edict. It's a modification of the first edict, so everything has to be included. However, they didn't, in fact. The Jewish people did not take the money. They made it very obvious this was not about the money. This was about saving lives, not about making money. We talked about this in the previous episode. So this is all going to happen in one day. And it's going to happen in all the provinces under the sway of the Persian Empire of the time. Everything that's under the dominion of Ahasuerosh. On the 13th day of Shchodesh Temas, the 12th month, Hu Chodesh Adar. That's the month of Adar. In verse 12, we read that in verse 13, pardon me, we say, Pashegen Haksov Lehinos in Dos Bechol Medina U Medina. Copies of this edict are sent out or made as law, promulgated in every single province, published or publicized before all nations, so that the Jewish people would be prepared on that day to avenge themselves of their enemies. We don't get the details of the edict. We'll talk about the details in a little while, in a few minutes. So the bottom line is that the, the, uh, the notion of, of the edict is very clear. What the Megillah shares with us is that the Jewish people will be gathering and the Jewish people will be exacting vengeance and killing their enemies. And this is published and this is public and everybody knows about what is going to happen. The text of this document is to become legally binding in every province. So it's federal law being legislated into provincial law and it's publicly displayed before all the people. The Jewish people are, if you will, the subject of this edict. They are to be prepared to avenge themselves of their enemies on this day. So, copies of the edict is also to be understood as clearly spelled out. Clearly spelled out. This is something that had to be obvious to everybody. This, is, this was not something that could be left, if you will, in some kind of nebulous territory. Maybe you do understand it. Maybe we don't understand it. No, no, no. This had to be very, very clear so that everybody knew exactly what was going on. And this was different from the contents of Haman's decree, which were particularly and specifically and pointedly written in vague and secretive terms. This is very different. Mordechai's decree is This Paschagen, this copy has to be written in an open, clear, lucid way. Published to everybody. No secrets whatsoever. As the Kara Kemach, the Chidah says, this had to be known to everybody that the Jewish people should be ready to defend themselves on that particular day. Now, why did they have to gather into, into, um, into groups? So, I've, I've seen it suggested that one of the reasons that they should gather is because here, people might have been in danger. If there's small pockets of Jewish people, maybe the enemies would be able to attack them. So we had to kind of gather all the Jews together. 
Not a simple thing. To gather Jews together is, as a rule, not simple. So here we have everybody being gathered together. The Megillus Elio clearly spells it out. Megillus Elio says that this was for the safety of the Jewish people. Mordechai was concerned that if there would be small pockets of Jewish people, as historically there always have been, then their enemies would gang up on these small groups of Jews or individuals and would vanquish them. So he instructed all the Jews to join together in large groups. And of course, there's this subtle undertone here that if we're together, we can overcome our enemies. It's when we're divided that tragically and unfortunately, we're left open to attack. So we know now that the Jewish people were the actual subject of, of, of this order. It wasn't just permission. The Jewish people were being told to do something. They were being told to gather together. They were also being told to weaponize. The Ma'am Lois asked the question point blank. He says, he says what, is, what does it mean? What does it mean when the Jewish people were told to, to do this, this, this kind of thing? He says, when it comes to arming themselves, that was not natural. The Jewish people didn't have a militia. They didn't have an army or a defense league. So they needed time to be able to arm themselves. Now, of course, the notion of defense, self-defense, is profoundly Jewish. One who comes to kill you, rise up and kill him first. That's a clear halacha. So here the Jewish people were given permission to do this. And because they now have permission to do this, they're also given, if you will, the wherewithal to do this. In the words of the Yad HaMelech, as cited by the Ma'am Lois, the point here was, The Jewish people needed now to weaponize themselves. They needed to arm themselves. They probably needed to train. It was actually a huge battle, as we describe in the next chapter of the Megillah. Another idea that's talked about here is the fact that many, many of the Jewish people were in a tremendous amount of duress and pain. The word had gotten out. They were being mocked in the streets. They were openly told that their lives weren't worth a penny and that soon all of them would be murdered. And actually, people's lives were in danger because when a criminal ilk hears that there's a group of people slated for genocide, there's no respect for their human rights or life. And so, the Ma'amloys kind of develops this idea, culling multiple sources. And he says that there was a need for great haste. And the reason that there was a need for great haste, he kind of anthologizes the words of the Yad HaMelech and the Menot HaLevi. Menos HaLevi, he says. As we mentioned, the Jewish people needed to arm, they needed to train, to train themselves. Number two, there was people's lives were actually in danger. And people were under tremendous duress. And there was also emotional stress. Imagine being a child in that time, growing up with this, you know, overhearing the conversation of adults and hushed whispers that we're all going to be massacred soon. So Mordechai wanted to alleviate the situation of circumstances. And he uses great haste. And this, my friends, is, is the point what I'm going to try to make you know. Why does the Megillah tell us about these unique animals? 
And why might we be talking about multiple animals, alluding to the possibility of using a variety of different segments of the Pony Express, proverbially speaking, which is not only made of ponies, but rather probably has camels and swift mules as well? The answer is, Mordechai felt that time was of essence. Time was of essence because you had to roll back a situation and you had to be prepared for the next situation. There's a critical line here, and the critical line here is lihiyot atidin, so that this notion of what would become, so to speak, law in every province now has to become something that the people are prepared so that they are ready for that day. The word atid typically is translated as the future or looking into the future. But actually, if you think about it here, it talks about readiness. The Megillah is communicating to us something remarkable. Mordechai set in motion a situation where the king not only said, the Jewish people can defend themselves. He said we could go on an offensive kind of defense. We can arm ourselves. We can prepare ourselves. This is a totally rotated situation. Consider this. When the runners leave in verse 14, it says, Harotzim, now the roch ve'arechesh, ha'achashtronim, the riders of rechesh, of the royal stock of achashtronim, which could mean mules or fast camels or both, and maybe that's why it's not translated. Because it means he used multiple methods to get the message out. Maybe parts was a race and other parts was a marathon. Maybe it depends where the message was going. Maybe the areas which were only a few days from Shushan, it was only stallions on full gallop. But when you had to go to other places, there you moved from race mode into marathon mode. And it wasn't about who could gallop quickest in the next six hours, but who would have stamina to go for 12 hours till we got to the next way station. And the terrain would make a huge difference. The Yatsu Muvayholim, they went out in a, a state of bewilderment. The Manas Halevi says, historically, Jewish people have been slated for genocide. It's the great tragedy of our Galut. Time and again, we've been massacred. Tell me one time where the world got up and said, Jewish people, defend yourselves. Prepare and defend yourselves. Every time Israel tries to defend themselves, the world powers try to rein them in. Israel hasn't really won a war since 1967. Do you think about that? Ever since it's developed its special relationship with the United States, the United States is keeping Israel on a short leash. I'm not even going to go into the things that Kissinger told Nixon during the Yom Kippur War. Let Israel get a bloody nose. We'll come in at the end to save him. The world doesn't like when we defend ourselves. 1967 was so unique because in six days we did what no army had done before. And the world is bewildered by it. That's what happened in the time of Ahasuerus. The riders themselves were bewildered. They couldn't understand what's going on here. First, the king had sent out a message to annihilate the Jews. Yeah, they heard stuff like that before. Nothing new here. Now it was just larger, swifter. But in principle, the notion of Jews being targeted or persecuted was not particularly novel to any of these individuals. 
They'd seen Nebuchadnezzar persecute the Jews. They'd seen Belshazzar persecute the Jews. They'd seen Cyrus allow for the building of a base of English and then shut it down. Jewish people have always been persecuted. But now Jewish people are being feted. Jewish people are being encouraged to get together, to weaponize, to train, to go on the offensive, to defend themselves. This is bewildering. What happened? How did things shift so quickly? So the first thing we know is that Mordechai impresses upon them to utilize the swiftest of systems. In the first time around, the first decree, Haman doesn't have to do that. There is no rush. It's 12 months away. He sent the royal couriers. We don't need to know how the royal road was activated, if the Pony Express was used, whether there was camels, dromedaries, mules, steeds, horses. Who cares? It's, not, it's, not, it's of no relevance. What's relevant, that's important to know is that a decree had been meted out against the Jewish people, la hashmid, la hadigul, abed, annihilation, full genocide. That's what the Megillah wants you to know. The speed is irrelevant. Here, in order for us to appreciate and understand what Mordechai and Esther were able to conceive of with the tacit permission and, in fact, full force of the king's order was nothing short of the most miraculous of turnarounds. Where the Jewish people would not only defend themselves if they would be attacked, but they would go on the offensive. And that speed had to be used so that we would actually we could be ready. The neo-Nazis didn't need time to weaponize. They were paramilitary organizations already. Those who wanted to persecute the Jewish people, the Amaleks of the world, are always engaged in violence. We and violence are not exactly French fries and ketchup. We don't know how to deal with violence. We, the Jewish people, are not really good at this. We're good at the debating team, not at the... Not at the, on, the, on the range. <laughs> you know, there's a, a Canadian bar mitzvah joke that goes something. How do you define a bar mitzvah for a Canadian boy? Jewish boy said the bar mitzvah is the time he realizes that he will more likely own the team than play for the team. The modern gladiator sport of people slashing each other or hitting each other with their sticks and blood on the ice. How many Jewish hockey players do you have? I know one. And he was too violent here, so he decided to go play in Europe. More money, he told me, less violence. How many Jewish football players are? We get like one guy who played, two people who played out of hundreds of professional football players. It's not a thing we do. We're not great at that. We excel in other fields. Here, time is of essence. We need a time to kind of readjust ourselves to a whole New Weltanschauung. No, we were not going to be the exiled Jew looking over his shoulder and trying to run away with his head between his tails. We were going to take the offensive. We were going to unite and create paramilitary units and go after our enemies. We hadn't seen anything like this since the days of maybe King David. This was unbelievable. In Galut yet? We're not living in Israel. We're not under the command of the, of the, of the royal Jewish authority, the imperial Jew. None of that. We're in Ahasuerus' land. We're in the Persian Empire. And yet, we're going to be able to accomplish this? Mordechai knew that there wasn't a moment to be wasted. Truth be told, the Megillah doesn't want to elaborate on the exact intricacies of the Royal Road or the Pony Express. Because, because that's not relevant. It doesn't matter how the message was delivered. What is relevant 
is that it was delivered with the greatest of haste. And that was a miracle. And it's all open. It's all open. Everything's out in the open. Like the, like the Menas HaLevi says, Pashegen Haksav means that the Targum, that the clear translation of this letter, of this decree, had to be posted, he says, in the city streets. Placards were put up everywhere. Borer, clear. This is Ratzon HaMelech. This is what the king orders. Enkan Shum Sod. No secrets here. Leos Atidim. There's a very sweet interpretation. And Amlo always quotes it. I don't, I'm not sure from who it is. He says that the word Atidim is also connected. It's actually spelled Atudim with a Vav. It's written, it's, 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 it's vowelized. It's, it's read Atidim, but it's actually spelled Atudim. What are Atudim? Atudim, he says, are the, the leaders of the pack. Like when you have the sheep. Every sheep has one sheep who serves as the leader and everybody else, you know, following the sheep to the slaughter. You got to get that one sheep to get to be a pioneer, to be out in the front. And the point was initiative. We were not going to wait until we were smacked to hit back. We were going to take initiative. I don't know if until 1967 the Jewish people ever took this kind of initiative to defend themselves. In 1967, we launched the war before they attacked us. And tragically, a few, few short years later, Israel was ashamed. It felt bad. It was apologizing, which allowed for the awful debacle of the surprise attack on Yom Kippur, which wasn't really a surprise we were defenseless. It was awful. So many korbanas, so many innocent lives were lost for no good reason. Because we don't know how to deal with the notion of taking initiative and going after our enemies in a powerful way. That's what Mordechai was worried about. That's what he's talking about here. Like the atudim ha'hochim l'fnei hatzon. And the Mamloi says that there's a remez. This also alludes to the notion of Purim being a time to dance. He says there's this smechim uh, ka'atudim means to prance or dance like a goat or a sheep, to, to jump around like a goat, like a wild goat. So, of course, Purim later would be celebrated with this forward kind of joy. But in the time of the Megillah, it meant take initiative. We needed time. We had to readjust ourselves. And that's why the Yad Melech says... Why? The riders couldn't understand the need for speed. They were bewildered by what was going on here. And it was all, why did Mordechai muster them in this fashion? To make sure that everything would be ready in time for that day. We needed to be armed. We needed to be trained. Fascinatingly, the first time it says, we were destined, slated for genocide. And now it's a very kind of atidim. Now we are, so to speak, prepared. The first decree said, be prepared to die. The second decree said, be prepared to fight and defend yourself. It doesn't take time to be prepared to die. That's a threat. 
That's demoralization. Be prepared to defend yourself is a call to action. That takes time. The Maimar Mordechai and the Dina Psharas say like this, Mordechai did everything with great haste, and I'm quoting as it's cited by the Mamloys, so that we would be ready on the 13th day of Adar. And by being ready in advance, this became an interpretation of the previous decree by emphasizing the same day. How so? It's as if the message went out first, enemies of the Jews, muster. And then a message went out and said, Jewish people, go after your enemies now. So Ahasuerus said, and this is how it was presented to him, and he loved it. He said, the Jewish people were first made targets so that the enemies would stand up and identify themselves. And now that the enemies have proudly and loudly identified themselves, the Jewish people are commanded to go after them. <laughs> Before, who would know who was an enemy and who wasn't? Now all the proud neo-Nazis were screaming in the street, sign me up, I'm here, ready to do the job. Excellent, now we know who you are. And in fact, the story of Haman became a perfect paradigm. Haman went after Mordechai. He identified Mordechai as the prime threat to his view of a Judean Persian. So the Persian emperor had to be cleansed. And what did Ahasuerus do? Ahasuerus said, great, it's Mordechai, you want to hang? Now we know who you are. Haman was hung by Mordechai on his property. And this is the way that the Sone Israel, the enemies of the Jewish people, were identified. Now, when people pile onto the Jewish people, they're always, you know, they, those who join the bandwagon. But when lives are in danger, and it's not popular to be an anti-Semite, that's where the men separate from the boys in the, amongst the anti-Semites. Then you find who the real haters are. The real haters are ready to hate even if they pay a price. That's a Amalek. Amalek was now identified. Now, I want to talk about my theory of multiple animals being used. It's not really so original. Truth be told, the Maimon Mordechai actually alludes to this. And I'm going to read from the Maimon Mordechai. He says, Even though there were different modes of transportation. Which is the royal steeds. The Maim of Mordechai does not see them as one and the same. He says, some of them could do derech asara yom Some could cover the ground that in normal travel time you would take one day, they could do it in ten days in one day. And then he says, v'hagmalim hakalim and the swift dromedary or camels who could go a hundred farsayings in a day. They could have gone out slow, slow start. It's a marathon. They were pushed. What does Mivaholim mean? They couldn't understand what was going on. They were bewildered. Why did the king regret everything? Why did he turn everything around? Why are we being made to go with such haste? Haman is dead. We just came home. Some of these people had just come home from delivering the message. And now they're being sent right back out into the road again. Dechufim. The Chufim says the Dinah Why were they being pushed? 
דחופם כדי שיביאו בסורס טויבס לישראל. So that the good news could get every member of Am Yisrael Shoyashruim Bitzar. Not because they were in danger, but because the fact remains that they were under a tremendous amount of stress. Emotional pain, anguish. Shushan Adasnitna Shushan Abira. The word was out in Shushan Abira. That didn't take that didn't take very long. That was out in a day. The point was, as the Maloha Oimer says, that even the Makomotarchokim distant, furthest reaches of the empire had these couriers reach because, because they were pushed, because they were bewildered by the speed that they were dem- was being demanded of them. In Shushan itself, everything went normally. So anyway, I, I, I think this does give us a, a clarity, at least it, it, I got to say it gave me tremendous clarity. I, I, I finally understood this. And uh, thank, I thank Hashem for that. I, 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 think, I think this whole thing just kind of comes together. It makes a lot of sense. The Megillah's message to us is how everything now was done with such speed because this represents the power of the miracle. It represents the, the essence of this shocking turnaround. As the... As the um, Dina Pshara puts it, he says, the very fact that it was on the exact same day, the exact same day, which was supposed to be a bad day, and that was like drawn by means of lottery, and the Jewish people would have bad luck on this day, and it turned out to be the most mazaldic, the most lucky, if you will, or <laughs> the most advantageous day. Ro hakol, everybody saw, that this was a miracle, totally unnatural. Even if a second decree, a second edict goes out, but the fact that the second edict goes out with this kind of speed, in a way that's so advantageous to Klal Yisrael, that helps us appreciate the meaning of the miracle. With this, let's go back to the Gemara. So what did the Gemara say? The Gemara came along and said that we ourselves don't necessarily understand the words Achashtronim b'nei yet Elo mitzvah kriya the mitzvah to read it, you're publicizing the miracle. When you hear that the second decree was promulgated with such haste, with such speed, with such force, marshalling all of the wherewithal of the royal road and the Persian Pony Express, that is the mitzvah of Persumenisa. That gets the message out. I don't have to understand every single word. What I can understand is that they were using even the most arcane, even the most unusual methods. Not a detail was spared in getting the message out as quickly as humanly possible. That's the Persumanisa. That's the miracle, as the Dina Peshada says. And that was the proof. And that, my dear friends, is all I have for you today for the Persian Pony Express. Uh, I certainly, um, I certainly feel uplifted by this. I, I understand the Megillah in a different way. I hope that you've benefited as well. And the important thing for us to remember is that Hashem is ever-present. And even, even when it seems that things aren't fantastic and we're in Galut, we must know that ultimately HaKadosh Baruch Hu is with us. And I want to conclude with this note. The Megillah itself does not reveal 
the precise text of the document. The, there's a, a Madrashic rendition of that text which could be found in the Aramaic translation of the Megillah, which is called the Targum Sheni, or Paschagin Aksov. And in, in a certain sense, what could we learn from the details of what Achashverosh wrote? Why should the Megillah include it? It doesn't include it. It's not relevant. That's not scripture. What Achashverosh wrote is in scripture. What happened is scripture. That's Hashem's message to us. So why would the, the Medrashim then preserve the, meth, the, the message? Why, why would the Medrash preserve intact the text? So the Rebbe says there has to be a message for us. And the Rebbe suggests that oftentimes when you look in the Medrashim, when you see things through the, the view of the Medrash, which is not the pshuto, not the straightforward read, but the homily or homilytic perspective, looking through Medrashic eyes, we see Achashverosh as really but a tool in Hashem's hands. It's really not about Achashverosh. It's really about Hashem acting through Achashverosh. He's just almost co-opted or taken over by a higher force. And from that perspective, which is not the literal verses, but from that perspective, even Achashverosh's decree should have lasting meaning to us. And so the Rebbe suggested that if we, uh, if we look at the Medrash, well, Achashverosh, through Medrashic lenses, he, the Rebbe here quotes, part of the text is, and I'm quoting, I am writing to tell you about the sincerity and integrity of the Jews who love all the nations and respect all forms of government, acting amicably towards all ministers of the land. That's, that's a fair English rendition of the Pashtagonaks of the Aramaic interpretation. Of course, this is very different than the message Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai leaves us with after living through the terrible purges in Roman times. He says, It is known that the non-Jewish world hates Jacob. It's like a ruling in Jewish law, says the Sifri in Parshat Baalotcha. So what is the correct approach? Do we look at the world as everybody hates us? Or do we see the world as really friends or partners in building a better tomorrow? The Rebbe suggests that both can be true. There are different times in history. The shifting of the social contexts necessarily means there are time when the prevailing non-Jewish culture will show incredible animosity and hatred to the Jewish people, like you read in the Megillah. And obviously, when you're being hated, when you're being persecuted, you can't be expected to send love and respect to others. We weren't busy loving the world during the Holocaust years. But there are times when we, the Jewish people, are accepted and even admired. There are times when the appropriate attitude is, yes, as Ahasuerus wrote, we the Jewish people love all nations and respect all forms of government. The Rebbe wrote, quote, enemies become friends when they realize how necessary both parties are for the general good. For example, proverbially speaking, the enemy of every religious person is his bodily reality. The neshama is struggling with the body. The body doesn't want to hear about faith, religion, sensitivity, kindness. 
Are you kidding? The body wants to be slothful and fulfill its own sensual desires and pleasures. But when you get a little older, you become what they call a mensch. Well, as you mature, you can reframe bodily reality and in fact even the nature of one's material existence into a very important tool and mechanism for Avodat Hashem, to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. In other words, you can realize that life can best be experienced as the Torah wants us to experience life. And it's actually the most fulfilling way to live and exist. The basic message, of course, is that the body and soul don't have to be at loggerheads. They don't have to be locking horns. They don't have to be at war with each other. They can necessarily come to the realization that by operating in tandem, everybody gains more. The Rebbe suggested that that's a paradigm for geopolitics from a Jewish perspective. The truth is that we, Am Yisrael, have a critical and crucial role to play in making this world the godly and goodly place that was always destined to be. The truth also is that the nations of the world also, they too play a crucial and important role in making this happen. The truth is that we both ought to be grateful to each other for the opportunities that we can each provide one another to make our world the destined dwelling for Hashem. And when we come to this realization, then we're able to discard the attitude of mutual animosity that has sadly and tragically plagued our relationship with so many of our neighbors for the past. And we come to the realization that we can work together. My friends, this doesn't happen when the Jewish people abandons its core mission. It doesn't happen when we think light onto the nations means to become the mirror of reflecting other people's ethos or Western ideas. It happens when you're Mordechai HaYehudi. It happens when you serve Hashem with absolute commitment and devotion. It happens when you're totally focused on what HaKadosh Baruch Hu asks and wants of you. And when that happens, and when that happens, when we respect ourselves and the mission Hashem gave us, hopefully, others learn to respect us too. And that respect then becomes symbiotic. And in mutual respect, we're able to move forward successfully and hopefully very, very soon. And in our time, we will see the kind of miraculous turnaround experienced in the days of the Megillah in the most extraordinary, the most magnificent, and the most miraculous way with the coming of Mashiach Tzedkenu and the ushering in of the prophesied era of universal God-consciousness, peace, and prosperity. Bimheda will be Amenu. Amen. Thank you.